Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. C.S. Lewis, Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life, Chapter 15, The Beginning. Epigraph. Aliud est de silvestri cacumine videre patriam pacis, et aliud tenere viam iluc ducentum. For it is one thing to see the land of peace from a wooded ridge, and another to tread the road that leads to it. St. Augustine, Confessions 7.21 It must be understood that the conversion recorded in the last chapter was only to theism, pure and simple not to Christianity. I knew nothing yet about the Incarnation. The God to whom I surrendered was sheerly non-human. It may be asked whether my terror was at all relieved by the thought that I was now approaching the source from which those arrows of joy had been shot at me ever since childhood. Not in the least. No slightest hint was vouchsafed me that there ever had been or ever would be any connection between God and joy. If anything, it was the reverse. I had hoped that the heart of reality might be of such a kind that we can best symbolize it as a place. Instead, I found it to be a person. For all I knew, the total rejection of what I called joy might be one of the demands, might be the very first demand he would make upon me. There was no strain of music from within, no smell of eternal orchards at the threshold when I was dragged through the doorway. No kind of desire was present at all. My conversion involved as yet no belief in a future life. I now number it among my greatest mercies that I was permitted for several months, perhaps for a year, to know God and to attempt obedience without even raising that question. My training was like that of the Jews, to whom he revealed himself centuries before there was a whisper of anything better or worse beyond the grave than shadowy and featureless Sheol. And I did not dream even of that. There are men, far better men than I, who have made immortality almost the central doctrine of their religion. But for my own part, I have never seen how a preoccupation with that subject at the outset could fail to corrupt the whole thing. I had been brought up to believe that goodness was goodness only if it were disinterested and that any hope of reward or fear of punishment contaminated the will. If I was wrong in this, the question is really much more complicated than I then perceived. My error was most tenderly allowed for. I was afraid that threats or promises would demoralize me. No threats or promises were made. The commands were inexorable, but they were backed by no sanctions. God was to be obeyed simply because he was God. Long since, through the gods of Asgard, and later through the notion of the absolute, he had taught me how a thing can be revered not for what it can do to us, but for what it is in itself. That is why, though it was a terror, it was no surprise to learn that God is to be obeyed because of what he is in himself. If you ask why we should obey God, in the last resort the answer is... I am. To know God is to know that our obedience is due to him. In his nature, his sovereign de jour is revealed. Of course, 
as I have said, the matter is more complicated than that. The primal and necessary being, the Creator, has sovereignty de facto as well as de jure. He has the power as well as the kingdom and the glory. But the de jure sovereignty was made known to me before the power, the right before the might. And for this, I am thankful. I think it is well, even now, sometimes to say to ourselves, God is such that if, per impossibile, his power could vanish and his other attributes remain, so that the supreme right were forever robbed of the supreme might, we should still owe him precisely the same kind and degree of allegiance as we now do. On the other hand, while it is true to say that God's own nature is the real sanction of his commands, yet to understand this must, in the end, lead us to the conclusion that union with that nature is bliss, and separation from it, horror. Thus, heaven and hell come in. But it may well be that to think much of either except in this context of thought, to hypostatize them, as if they had a substantial meaning apart from the presence or absence of God, corrupts the doctrine of both, and corrupts us while we so think of them. The last stage in my story, the transition from mere theism to Christianity, is the one on which I am now least informed. Since it is also the most recent, this ignorance may seem strange. I think there are two reasons. One is that as we grow older, we remember the more distant past better than what is nearer. But the other is, I believe, that one of the first results of my theistic conversion was a marked decrease, and high time, as all readers of this book will agree, in the fussy attentiveness which I had so long paid to the progress of my own opinions and the states of my own mind. For many healthy extroverts, Self-examination first begins with conversion. For me, it was almost the other way round. Self-examination did, of course, continue, but it was, I suppose, for I cannot quite remember, at stated intervals, and for a practical purpose. A duty, a discipline, an uncomfortable thing, no longer a hobby or a habit. To believe and to pray were the beginning of extroversion. I had been, as they say, taken out of myself. If theism had done nothing else for me, I should still be thankful that it cured me of the time-wasting and foolish practice of keeping a diary. Even for autobiographical purposes, a diary is nothing like so useful as I had hoped. You put down each day what you think important, but of course you cannot each day see what will prove to have been important in the long run. As soon as I became a theist, I started attending my parish church on Sundays and my college chapel on weekdays. Not because I believed in Christianity, nor because I thought the difference between it and simple theism a small one, but because I thought one ought to fly one's flag by some unmistakable overt sign. I was acting in obedience to a, perhaps mistaken, sense of honor. The idea of churchmanship was to me wholly unattractive. I was not in the least anti-clerical, but I was deeply anti-ecclesiastical. That curates and archdeacons and church wardens should exist was admirable. They gratified my Jenkinian love of everything which has its own strong flavor. And, apart from Oldie, 
I had been fortunate in my clerical acquaintances, especially in Adam Fox, the Dean of Divinity at Magdalen, and in Arthur Barton, later Archbishop of Dublin, who had been our rector at home in Ireland. He, by the by, had once suffered under Oldy at Belsham. Speaking of Oldy's death, I had said to him, Well, we shan't see him again. You mean, he answered with a grim smile, we hope we shan't. But though I liked clergymen as I liked bears, I had as little wish to be in the church as in the zoo. It was, to begin with, a kind of collective, a wearisome get-together affair. I couldn't yet see how a concern of that sort should have anything to do with one's spiritual life. To me, religion ought to have been a matter of good men praying alone, and meeting by twos and threes to talk of spiritual matters. And then the fussy, time-wasting botheration of it all. The bells, the crowds, the umbrellas, the notices, the bustle, the perpetual arranging and organizing. Hymns were, and are, extremely disagreeable to me. Of all musical instruments, I liked, and like the organ, least. I have, too, a sort of spiritual gaucherie, which makes me unapt to participate in any rite. Thus, my church-going was a merely symbolical and provisional practice. If it in fact helped to move me in the Christian direction, I was and am unaware of this. My chief companion on this stage of the road was Griffiths, with whom I kept up a copious correspondence. Both now believed in God, and were ready to hear more of him from any source, pagan or Christian. In my mind, I cannot now answer for his. And he has told his own story admirably in The Golden String. The perplexing multiplicity of religions began to sort itself out. The real clue had been put into my hand by that hard-boiled atheist when he said, Rum thing, all that about the dying God, seems to have really happened once. By him, and by Barfield's encouragement of a more respectful, if not more delighted, attitude to pagan myth. The question was no longer to find the one simply true religion among a thousand religions simply false. It was rather, where has religion reached its true maturity? Where, if anywhere, have the hints of all paganism been fulfilled? With the irreligious, I was no longer concerned. Their view of life was henceforth out of court. As against them, the whole mass of those who had worshipped, all who had danced and sung and sacrificed and trembled and adored, were clearly right. But the intellect and the conscience, as well as the orgy and the ritual, must be our guide. There could be no question of going back to primitive, untheologized and unmoralized paganism. The God whom I had at last acknowledged was one and was righteous. Paganism had been only the childhood of religion, or only a prophetic dream. Where was the thing full-grown, or where was the awaking? The everlasting man helped me here. There were, really, only two answers possible, either in Hinduism or in Christianity. Everything else was either a preparation for, or else, in the French mode, a vulgarization of these. Whatever you could find elsewhere, you could find better in one of these. But Hinduism seemed to have two disqualifications. For one thing, it appeared to be not so much a moralized and philosophical maturity of paganism 
as a mere oil and water coexistence of philosophy, side by side with paganism unpurged, the Brahmin meditating in the forest, and, in the village a few miles away, temple prostitution, sati, cruelty, monstrosity. And secondly, there was no such historical claim as in Christianity. I was by now too experienced in literary criticism to regard the Gospels as myths. They had not the mythical taste. And yet, the very matter which they set down in their artless, historical fashion, those narrow, unattractive Jews, too blind to the mythical wealth of the pagan world around them, was precisely the matter of the great myths. If ever a myth had become fact, had been incarnated, it would be just like this. And nothing else in all literature was just like this. Myths were like it in one way. Histories were like it in another. But nothing was simply like it. And no person was like the person it depicted as real, as recognizable through all that depth of time as Plato's Socrates or Boswell's Johnson, ten times more so than Eckerman's Goethe or Lockhart's Scott, yet also numinous, lit by a light from beyond the world, a god, but if a god, we are no longer polytheists, then not a god, but god. Here, and here only, in all time, the myth must have become fact. The word flesh, God, man. This is not a religion, nor a philosophy. It is the summing up and actuality of them all. As I have said, I speak of this last transition less certainly than of any which went before it. And it may be that in the preceding paragraph I have mixed thoughts that came later. But I can hardly be wrong about the main lines. Of one thing I am sure. As I drew near the conclusion, I felt a resistance almost as strong as my previous resistance to theism. As strong, but shorter lived. For I understood it better. Every step I had taken, from the absolute to spirit, and from spirit to God, had been a step towards the more concrete, the more imminent, the more compulsive. At each step one had less chance to call one's soul one's own. To accept the Incarnation was a further step in the same direction. It brings God nearer, or near in a new way. And this, I found, was something I had not wanted. But to recognize the ground for my evasion was, of course, to recognize both its shame and its futility. I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like when a man, after long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake, 
And it was, like that moment on top of the bus, ambiguous. Freedom or necessity? Or do they differ at their maximum? At that maximum, a man is what he does. There is nothing of him left over or outside the act. As for what we commonly call will, and what we commonly call emotion, I fancy these usually talk too loud, protest too much to be quite believed. And we have a secret suspicion that the great passion or the iron resolution is partly a put-up job. They have spoiled Whipsnade since then. Wallaby wood with the birds singing overhead and the bluebells underfoot and the wallabies hopping all round one was almost Eden come again. But what, in conclusion, of joy? For that, after all, is what the story has mainly been about. To tell you the truth, the subject has lost nearly all interest for me since I became a Christian. I cannot, indeed, complain, like Wordsworth, that the visionary gleam has passed away. I believe, if the thing were at all worth recording, that the old stab, the old bittersweet, has come to me as often and as sharply since my conversion as at any time of my life whatever. But I now know that the experience, considered as a state of my own mind, had never had the kind of importance I once gave it. It was valuable only as a pointer to something other and outer. While that other was in doubt, the pointer naturally loomed large in my thoughts. When we are lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who first sees it cries, Look! The whole party gathers round and stares. But when we have found the road and are passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. They will encourage us, and we shall be grateful to the authority that set them up. But we shall not stop and stare, or not much. Not on this road, though their pillars are of silver and their lettering of gold. We would be at Jerusalem. Not, of course, that I don't often catch myself stopping to stare at roadside objects of even less importance. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>